Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, kids. You are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, July 31st, 2018. Oh, my God. July 31st. That means August is tomorrow. Where has the summer gone? I'll tell you where mine has been going. Sitting in this little room doing my best to bring you a fresh episode of Fish Out of Agua each week where we showcase New York City's best up-and-coming, under-the-radar, about-to-blow-up women, POC, LGBTQ, and differing ability artists. Ah, Sometimes keeping it together is enough to give a gal a personality crisis. But then again, I think I'll leave that to the experts. Like the way the New York Dolls sang it in 1973. Personality crisis, we don't stop. 
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song was Personality Crisis by the New York Dolls from their New York Dolls, a self-named eponymous album back in 1973. And that was preceded by an actual recording of a New York City ambulance. It wasn't just an accident. Although there was a New York City ambulance coming down my street at the same time. So it was like double ambulance. So anyway, we have a fantastic show for you today with a fantastic guest artist I cannot wait to bring for you. So we are not going to wait another second, and we're going to open this segment with a song that our guest Hello, artist can pick to open the Shoot the pool, Giuseppe going to flunk a school. Boy, it make me sick. All the thing I gotta do. I can't get no kicks. I always got to follow rules. Boy, it make me sick. Just to make the lousy bucks. Got to feel like a fool. And the mama used to say all the time, What's the matter to you? Hey, gotta no respect. What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's a not so bad. It's a nicer place. Ah, shut up, you face. That's my mama. Can I remember? Big accordion solo. Make a TV shows and the movies Get myself a new car But still I be myself I don't want it to change a thing Still a dance and a sing I think about the mama She used to say What's the matter you? Hey, God, no respect What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's a not so bad It's a nicer place I shut up your face Mama, she said it all of the time What's the matter you? So bad, it's a nicer place. I shut up your face. That's my mom. Hello, everybody. That's out there on the radio on the TV land. Did you know I had a big hit the song in Italy with this? Shut up your face. I sing this song, all of my fans applaud, they clap their hands. But they make me feel so good. You ought to learn this song, it's a real simple. See, I sing, What's the matter, you? You sing, Hey. Then I sing it the rest. And then at the end, we can all sing, Ah, shut up, you face. Okay, let's try it, really. Uno, two, three, one. What's the matter, you? Hey, God, no respect. Hey, what do you think you do? Hey, why you look so sad? Hey, it's a not so bad. Hey, it's a nicer place. Ah, shut up, your face. So bad. Hey. It's a nicer place. Hey. Ah, shut up in your face. Okay, one time for mama, everybody. What's the matter, you? Hey. Got no respect. Hey. What do you think you do? Hey. Why you look so sad? Hey. It's a not so bad. Hey. Shut up in your face. 
That was Joe Dolce, who was then known as the Joe Dolce Music Theater, and Shut Up at Your Face, which was a number one international and U.S. single back in 1981. Well, kids, I bet you're dying to know which guest artists would pick that to open their episode. And now you're about to find out, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! So, we have a different type of artist for you today. We have a filmmaker and um, documentary filmmaker and all other types of film. And please welcome Heather Quinlan. Yay! Woohoo! Oh, thanks, everyone. Thank you. No, 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 please. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Sally Field. You like me. You really like me. Well, Happy belated birthday, by the way. Aww, <laughs> that's so sweet. Yes. So here's a question that I ask of everybody when we first start our chat. How do we meet? We met, actually, I knew about you through two people, completely different people who don't know each other, uh, Alexis Satilli and Mitch Reichler. Oh, yes. And when I was working on Knishes, which is my documentary on the New York accent, both of them, independently of each other, said, you have to talk to Michelle Carlo. And she was doing this show called uh, It Came From New York, and she's great, and you'll love her. And um, so you were on my list of people to talk to. So this and then is the like Daily- back in 2010? Yeah. The Daily wow. News had done an article on uh, me and Kanishas, and then you took it upon yourself to contact me. Really? Yes. Not knowing? Not knowing me, not knowing that oh I knew of God. you. And it was amazing because uh, it was then that I knew that Michelle Carlo is the greatest self-promoter in the free world. Oh, well, I don't know about the greatest, but I guess it, I guess it worked for me that time. It definitely did. I mean, I was really impressed with your moxie and what you had to say. And, you know, we have the Bronx Connection and I just thought, well, this is wonderful. And we met, right, we met in Union Square, and I bought a copy of Fish Out of Agua and had you autograph it. And um, then eventually we, we filmed an interview with you and uh, Frankie we, Clinton. We did the interview in Frankie Clinton's apartment. Yes. Yeah, and then next thing I knew, I'm on the screen. You're on the screen, and then, uh, you know, it really took off, and we were on New York One together. Yeah, we did a whole bunch of stuff with with this film, but we'll get back to that in a little Uh bit. So um, right now, I mean, of course, now we all know that we have a Bronx connection. So, um, of course, you can be nothing except a native New Yorker. So tell us a little bit about uh, where you're from and all that kind of good stuff. I was born in the Bronx. Uh, what hospital? Albert Einstein. Oh, my God. Um, it was good then. It's not so good anymore, I don't think. Oh, uh, well, my grandfather told my mother not to uh, have me there because they would... It, it's, a med- it's, a, it's a college, medical college. Uh, oh, so he thought they were all interns? So he thought they were going to use, like, experimental, I don't know. Techniques? Techniques on my mother, like, I don't know, like aliens or something. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but it all worked out fine. I'm here. Yeah, you're here. Uh, I mean, yeah. you're, you're a little experimental. I am a little experimental. <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe it was because of the interns. But so I didn't realize you you were born in the Bronx. For some reason, I thought you you grew up in Staten Island. Uh, well, I was. I, I come from Bronx people. My great grandfather came from Ireland and settled on Jackson Avenue. In oh, wow. Mott Haven. South my grandfather Bronx. grew up uh, in Mott Haven, around the corner from my grandmother. They knew each other their whole lives. And this was in the 1940s when? This was in the 20s. 20s, wow. Yeah, they married in the 30s. And um, then my dad was from there. And then um, he and my mom had a long-distance relationship, Staten Island and the Bronx. Oh, my God. You I, almost need a passport to travel between the two. Yeah, I, I, even to this day, I, that's, that's, that's quite a schlep. Um, so your parents, both your parents grew up in the South Bronx? No, my mother grew up in Staten Island. Oh, okay, that's right, that's right, sorry. Yeah, her mother grew up in Staten Island in Tottenville in the 20s, which would be like growing up, I feel like, in Iowa, you know, today. But, um, yeah, it was really, that's the southernmost point of the greater New York City area. Wow. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. Fun fact. Fun fact. Yetman Avenue, um, which is still there, and so is the house she grew up in, although it looks extremely different. Um, and my grandfather grew up in uh, Borough Park and Bay Ridge. Um, so Bronx, quarter Staten Island, quarter Brooklyn. <laughs> You're a New York mutt. So how old were you when you moved to Staten Island? Uh, I was uh, only about two. Oh, okay. So uh, you went to school and everything there. So basically no, you grew up I, I went to, well, I did start to go to school there. Uh, then uh, my parents split up. My dad stayed in Staten Island. My mom remarried and we moved to New Jersey. So I divided most of my childhood between New Jersey and Staten Island. And um, because people don't tend to come to New York and move to Staten Island, like people don't come from other parts of the country, my idea of New York was that it was populated by New Yorkers, and that was it. Hmm. Because I didn't really know anyone in Manhattan. I didn't know anyone anywhere else. I knew my grandparents had lived in the Bronx. I knew, like, I had cousins in the Bronx, things like that. But... I thought New York was just the place where New Yorkers lived, and I had talked to, I had met someone who lived in L.A., and I said, oh, that's so, you know, uh, she was from L.A., and she lived in L.A., and I was like, wow, that's so rare to meet someone who's from L.A., and she's like, well, you know, it, it must be rare for you to, to um, be from New York and meet New Yorkers, and I'm like, oh, no, everyone in New York is from New York. And it wasn't until, you know, later on that I realized it's just because nobody moves to Staten Island. <laughs> So were you, um, did you always want to make movies as a child? Were you artistic? Were you performance oriented? I was, I definitely had an artistic slant. I had two very different families. I had, um, the Bronx family was very um, kind of blue collar. Um, you know, my grandfather was a truck driver and a mechanic. My grandmother worked at Alexander's on Fordham Road. My dad actually worked not far from here on Wall Street. Uh, he was of that era where bankers were native New Yorkers too. Like mm. They got their degree in business and they went from to work Baruch or something from Baruch like that. By St. John's. Or, or City College. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or something and, like and that. And went to work in, in banking. So that was my dad. Um, so no creative blood on that side of the family at all? Uh, no, actually, um, some cousins I have of mine are artists and artistic, but I think they're art appreciators 
but I don't think they really work in the arts. <laughs> and in a way, I'm jealous because a lot of them are my age and retiring. Oh now. my God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it was like, ah, oh, I should have just gone to a vocational school and learned how to weld and be done with it. But um, I knew at an early age when I used to go to work with my dad or I'd go to work with my mom, um, I had fun at both places, you know, hanging out with grown-ups and stuff. I'm an only child. I don't have any siblings, which is what an only child is. And um, so I was used to, I was much more used to hanging out with adults and kids. Um, and uh, I knew from an early age that what my mother did, my mother w was at the time the head of publicity for WNBC during like the heyday of the Cosby Show, Cheers, oh, wow. all of that. My mother's father was an actor. Um, he had been an actor in the 40s. My grandmother was in actually in World War II. Um, not, she didn't see action, but she was uh, a whack. Oh God! I was going yeah. to say, was she a welder? She, was she like with the with the bicep the and the bandana? The I think she was more like a, a nurse. I'm not really sure. She ended up going from Tottenville, which is still pretty empty, to you know San Antonio and a couple other places like that. She outranked my grandfather. You encouraged them with your creative aspirations. How did you, how did that come out when you were a kid? Absolutely. Because you live because you grew up with your mother. I grew up well weekdays with my mother, weekends with my dad. My parents, I said, I, you know, I always say had a great divorce as far as divorces go. It was really more like you know we just didn't work out. But yes, I was very encouraged. Um, I was a very solitary kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, I like to keep to myself. I, I, I read constantly. I was, I was a voracious reader. My mother said she was like the only parent in the world who would be like, if I catch you reading one more book, you know, because I wouldn't be ready for school on time or something. Um, and um, it started with writing and um, eventually I, I, um, I, my uncle was a theater producer out in Long Island in Bellport. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's Gateway Playhouse, which is still there, although my uncle doesn't work there anymore. But it's a great summer stock theater out in Bellport, which is near Patchog for some kind of context. And um, uh, when I was 16, uh, I did uh, my first summer of summer stock theater. Oh my God, you were an actress. Well, I, no, I wasn't an actress. I was backstage. Oh. See, I was, I was kind of a chubby kid. Um, and like I said, I was shy. There was no way I would have auditioned to be an actress. I would have thought I was far too ugly. So I was um, a techie. Oh. Yes. So lighting, sound, lighting, backstage, sound, props. Uh, I even had to do the. Uh, we had the sandbags for the curtain back then, and when we did nonsense, um, which they're actually doing again this year. Well, we did it in 1991 the first time. Um, uh, I was in charge of uh, the flies because no one else could do them. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah. So what an education that must have been. In so many ways. How long were you? How long were you a teenage techie? I was a teenage techie for three summers. Wow. And then that, did you want to try to parlay that into being a professional? I did. Uh, I wanted to be a lighting designer. I went to Ithaca College in part of their tech theater program. So did, were you doing writing and stuff all through like grade school and high school too? I was on and off. Um, I uh, like working for a school newspaper or anything like that. I did that. work for the school newspaper. That's true. Where'd you I go did. to high school? 
Dwight Englewood in Englewood, New Jersey. I got a uh, scholarship. It's a private school, so it was a school for a lot of rich kids, which also kind of isolated me because so what was I that was like? not, it was horrible. Being, being the poor kid in the rich, in the rich East school. I mean, I wasn't poor in, in, in the greater scheme of things. We were decidedly middle class. We mm. were, we lived in Bergenfield in Bergen County. It was perfectly lovely. But, you know, I had friends that had like a house with a pool in it, you know, who lived in Upper Saddle River and did get a great education where I was. But I had gone to a Catholic school in Union City, which is heavily Cuban. And I was one of the few non-Cuban students there. Was that like being one of the few Caucasian kids in a mostly Latin environment? Did you notice any de-alienation, or were you just like, oh, yeah, we're all kids, yay, we? It was, it was mostly like that. It was a learning experience in that I never would have known who Menudo was had I not been there. I mean, when I, I remember when I came back in, like, the fourth grade from summer vacation, and all the girls were wearing Menudo pins, and I had no idea who the hell Menudo was. Oh, my God, I remember Menudo. <laughs> And I loved that school, but it was not a very good school. And I had a, a lay teacher, meaning a non-nun teacher in the fifth grade, who told my parents that I was too smart for the school and I should go to a better school. And so they put me into a private school and I just was swallowed up. It was, it was really, it was really, it was really hard. Ugh. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that really I still grapple with. So when you say you were swallowed up, like, what does that mean? Uh, Did you feel that you were academically over your head? Did you feel no, that you were class socially, over your, socially, socially over your head? So, yeah, that really, um, that really affected me a lot and kind of isolated me from the world a lot. Yeah, it kind of sucks to feel like the other in the room. Mm-hmm. Right? It does. It does. And I've, I've, I've fought it very well, I think. So was, was theater like your escape from that when, when, when you were checking with your uncle's theater company? It definitely was. I mean, I was with people who, you know, the youngest person after me was 19. I was 16, and he might as well have been 30. It was definitely a learning experience in terms of theater, doing live theater, which was, you know, such a rush. Um, and also learning, being around people older than myself who weren't my parents' age but were, like, in their 20s mm. and partying and that sort of thing. So how did your um, techie skills translate when you went to Ithaca? It wasn't long after that that I felt like I did not want to have the life that theater brought me. It was just a lot of where I felt like People were living lives, gypsy-type lifestyles that I didn't want to live. They were paying rent on apartments that they were never at. They were all in bad relationships. How old were you when you stopped working with them? Um, I was probably about 20. I had gotten a job uh, as the assistant to the children's book editor at Sterling Publishing, um, which is on Park Avenue South. Um, Everyone told me I couldn't get a job in publishing. I had been working at a Barnes & Noble um, as a sales girl. And are you graduated from Ithaca at this point? I graduated graduated in three years. So you were done at 20? So I was done with college at 20. Wow. Yes. Early achiever. I know. Advanced girl. Yeah, I had to use a fake ID the whole time. Um, Were you still living in New Jersey? Where the hell was I living? Oh, I was living in Astoria. Ah, so you on? So you moved out on your own very young. Yes, I moved out on my own, and, and uh, after a year, I was promoted to an acquisitions editor in the children's book department. And I thought this was what I wanted to be. And after two years or so, it got to the point where I was like, okay, you know, it just didn't have that hold on me anymore. So um, 
I had skipped a part of my life where I had uh, worked for the Discovery Channel. I was in, I was this in the mailroom. Before or after publishing? Before. I was in the mailroom, and I used to uh, sort mail for the publishing department and wish I could work there. And then there was an opening because an assistant was quitting. And um, I got the job, and then the Internet was breaking big, and um, so I left my full-time job to be a contractor with the Internet. They had ramped up way too quickly. After eight months, I realized something was going wrong because our vending machine that had previously been free was now charging for candy bars, and I said, this is not a good sign, and then we all lost our jobs. At Discovery? At Discovery. That wow. was the dot-com bust of 2000. Wow. So that's when I went into book publishing, and then I went back to Discovery, then they laid me off again. It was like being dumped by the same boyfriend twice. And, um, but how did you get into film? When, when does that come into play? When does a camera get in your hand? When does that come about? It's very funny because I was living with a man at the time who was a um, film director and producer. And he was working for the Discovery Channel. And um, because he had uh, access to equipment, and well, I got the idea for Knishes, which was my documentary on the New York accent. As I've told people, it just, it, it, I wish I had a great story for where the idea came from, but it literally, I sat down and I thought, what would I want to make a documentary on? And immediately it was the New York accent, and that was it. And this was in? And that was 2006. Wow. It was a long time ago. Wow. We yeah. were filming on mini DV back then. Oh my God. So, yeah. what inspired you? to use the subject of the New York accent for a film? First of all, uh, he was from Scotland. And oh, your boyfriend. Yes. And the ex. So, the ex. So there was a lot of emphasis put on accents, especially when I was over in Scotland. And um, between, you know, he was from Glasgow and the Glaswegians and the way they spoke. And Edinburgh, uh, which is more upper class, a lot of it, so you can understand it better. And the Highlands, you can really understand a lot better. Yeah, so I, I was always kind of tuned to accents. And we were, we were doing pretty well financially to the point where we were living in Manhattan. And so we were pretty removed from, I felt like, from the accent and the people who spoke it. And I almost felt like I wasn't a New Yorker anymore. I felt like a transplant. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I think doing a movie on the accent was a way for me to reconnect with the people from my childhood through uh, conversation. And... Um, through something that not, no one, to my knowledge, had really ever pursued before. So clearly something must have been, like, germinating, germinating uh, for a long time. And it, it's, it's almost supernatural that your idea and how you got this film made came out at just the right time. I know that for years and years, people were encouraged, forced to give up the New York accent if they wanted to have any type of career in acting or voiceovers or anything. I know that I took speech classes for years until the teacher just threw her hands up in the air and said, darling, you're never going to work. And I'm like, well, I'll just make my own work. And then that was the end of it, you know. And just to see a film where people talk. Right. I mean, like me, you know. I mean, there's certain words that I think you have to hit if you're a New Yorker. One of them is coffee. coffee. You got to say coffee. Uh -huh. You cannot say coffee. You have to say coffee. You have to say talk. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cab, I can't say cab. So when you got the idea to make knishes in 2006, you had never touched a camera at that point? I don't believe I had. I certainly hadn't used one. I might have touched one. <laughs> if we're going to get... Oh, yeah, technical. I guess, yeah, I guess, yeah. I'm sure you touched the camera. Uh, but, you, but you had never done anything like making a feature-length documentary film. No, no. And I certainly had no idea what went into it. Um, I went into it completely with my eyes closed, no clue. Um, and what forced me to learn was a lack of money. And then I could not afford to hire other cameramen. And I don't know if you remember your uh, shoot with Frankie. I filmed it. Yes. And that was because I couldn't afford a cameraman. Um, but so, how did you know all the aspects of production that were necessary to make a film? It was, it was through your boyfriend, like seeing what he did. Some of it was from him. He taught me. He taught me a lot. And if it were not for him, I probably would not be a filmmaker. I I, I could say that. So thank you, Chris. But I I was I was largely self-taught, and I did take some classes. Um, uh, Anthony Q. Artists, A-R-T-I-S, is a wonderful instructor. Um, I cannot say enough great things about him. I took one class of his, and I learned more from that one class than I ever learned in anything else, um, especially things about how audio is more important than visual, because if you, for some reason, forget to hit the record button, but you have the audio going, you can cover it with something but say you're interviewing me and you don't realize you're not recording and then you go to edit and you have no audio you got to do the whole thing over again yeah yeah, yeah. so audio is so critical interesting uh, yeah you you would think it's it's the visual but really it's not that the visual isn't but uh, but the audio is is you're really screwed if you don't have that whereas if you don't have the visual you're only slightly screwed did you have a list of the people that you wanted to interview because you've interviewed some luminaries there I, I, I did, and... Um, oh, I got to use the word luminary. Yes. yes! Oh, and you said it like a New Yorker, luminary. Yeah, luminary. <laughs> um, I, I did. There were some that, uh, you know, I aimed really high for, like Martin Scorsese um, and Neil Simon. And actually, Neil Simon originally gave me a yes, but then I got a no, and... Martin Scorsese just said no? Yeah, they just said no. But you got his friends. Yes, I got his friends. I got his friends. It's almost the better. They, they talked about him. Yes. Oh, I remember there's one scene where one friend says, oh, Marty, I taught him everything. Yes, yes. And um, they get kind of, their feelings hurt sometimes because they'll say, forget about it, you know, because that's how they talk. And someone will say, what, are you like talking from a movie? And they'll say, like, hey, hey, M Marty took it from us. You know, we didn't take it from Marty. So, yeah, they, uh, they get kind of annoyed, uh, I guess, in a way. So, uh, so yeah, uh, through, um, you know, necessity and the mother of invention, I learned how to shoot on my own. And then I got a job wherein I could afford to have an um, editor because I believe every, every director needs an editor. I don't care how good a director you are. Every writer needs an editor. Every director needs an editor. That is correct. And that is correct. I did have a very good one. So how long did it take for you to complete Knishes? Uh, Knishes kind of rose and fall as my finances rose and fell and my uh, life rose and fell. Um, 
So my first interview I remember was Pete Hamill, and that was in November of 2006. We shot a mini DV. That's how long ago it was. We didn't start editing until 2012, I believe, is when we finally had all the footage. And so five years of, of shooting. Yeah, pretty much five years of shooting. Now, one of those years, I basically took off to kind of reassess my life, and I had a lot going on. So... Um, it was more like four years, but, you know, it wasn't Monday through Friday, nine to five. It was, you know, sometimes I'd be like shooting, 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 shooting. Sometimes there'd be a block of time where like there wouldn't be much happening. I was working on a documentary about breastfeeding of all things. And, um, the girl who was working on it with me, who became my Kanisha's editor, her name was Hillary Walker, um, told me about Kickstarter and, uh, I want, I aim to raise $2,000 and I raised that in the first day, um, from people I didn't even know. Um, wow. Donated a thousand dollars, including someone who is not even a New Yorker. He's from Texas and now he lives in Silicon Valley. So yeah, I ended up making about $10,000 from that. And, um, so I used that and then my own finances. I also learned basically don't use your own money to make a movie as much as you can. <laughs> I know it's very hard and I know it's tempting just to want to shoot, 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 shoot. But there comes a point where, you know, your time is precious and valuable. And um, this is already not a field where you're probably going to get. Uh, rich and famous of documentaries uh, documentaries mm -hmm. so <laughs> so try and get as much money as you can from the people who have money um and that's what i'm learning now with this even though it stinks even though like who the hell wants to write a grant proposal and there's no guarantee when you write one that you're going to get it uh, it's still uh you know it's still a necessary evil i feel like to be able to get the best film that you can um, and not um, go bankrupt yourself over it. So the skills that you were learning while making knishes, did you take those skills and translate them to your money jobs, your day jobs? I, I was working for Merck Pharmaceuticals as a technical oh. writer. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> there you go. About as far from filmmaking as you could get. Although I did uh, film a how-to video on how to use their intranet. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Pharma paid well. It wasn't my uh, calling, but uh, I would never turn down that paycheck. So when the film was finished, Talk about how you went about doing what you did with it. Uh, well, uh, you kind of go on this like crazy spree of uh, submitting to film festivals. It's almost like gambling. It was finished in 2012, 2012. I think, and then we, we premiered in 2013. And yeah, I, I, like I said, I've never been into gambling, but the closest I've ever been to gambling is submitting my film to film festivals because... Uh, by and large, they cost money. So what festivals did you get in? I got into uh, the Manhattan Film Festival was the biggest one. Um, and that had a screening at the Quad Cinema. Um, 
and uh, the Art of Brooklyn, which has really exploded into an I think enormous. You film may festival. have been one of the first at the first one of the I first ones. I was the first one. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, Annabella Sciorra is involved with it now. They really have. Uh, yeah, it's a big deal. Because of conditions. Yes, I don't want to, you know, take all the credit, but I will. I got into Big Bear Lake Festival uh, out in California, which was the furthest away from New York. Um, that I was in the Hoboken Film Festival, um, Jersey City Film Festival. So, yeah, uh, interestingly, though, not the Coney Island Film Festival. I don't know why I didn't get in, but that one stung. That one oh, stung worse than Sundance. I mean, Sundance was a shot in the dark. But now make it into Coney? Coney Island. That's like going home and having the door slammed in yeah. your face. Coney Island Film Festival, you done wrong. So talk about the distribution, <laughs> because Kanishas has gone on, Coney Island Film Festival or no, Kanishas has gone on to be a Netflix choice. And you can see it in, in many other ways. It's on Amazon. So talk about the distribution. How does a documentary get distributed? get distribution? Uh, well, I was lucky enough to uh, work with a company called Film Rise. We've been in business together now for a few years and Amazon has really knocked my socks off in terms of the way that they have marketed my film and it was made one of Amazon's choice products, which is pretty friggin' amazing. It is a great uh, coup, I guess you would call it, because if you have Alexa, for instance, um, and you say, Alexa, tell me a movie to watch about New York, it will suggest that one. Wow. Yeah, people so have heard of it. People have seen it. I've actually been stopped in the street asking me if I was in the New York film. I love that. I, I know. love that so much. And my sales have shot up. So I have to ask this. Are you making any money off this movie yet? Well, I haven't made my money back, but uh, the money comes, I swear to Christ, whenever I'm down to my bottom dollar. Because all of a sudden, I'll get a royalty check and I'll be like, thank God I made this movie. Wow. So I was very, very happy that, A, I made a feature-length movie with the help of so many people, including you. You are a wonderful, wonderful person to have in my life, Michelle. And I just want to say that on here. You have been nothing but supportive since day one. And I hope to pay you back uh, somehow, however I Cash can. me in another film. I know. <laughs> uh, One that we get paid for. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I'm working on it. Knishes is the gift that just keeps on giving. So I guess if there was any moral to that little thing, it's about don't let not knowing how to do something stop you from doing it. Right. And having a feature-length documentary under your belt is, is quite an achievement. Yes. Uh, let me tell you, yeah. it's, it's, if I had known what I was getting into, uh, you know, I, I might have run screaming for the hills. I might not have, but I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't know in a way right. what I was getting into. No, I hear into. you. I totally hear you. Um, so, so this was a success. Your next, your following project, though, was not so much of a success. Why don't you, we talk a little bit about the 1986 Mets? Oh, God. Okay. Um, yes. Um, well, briefly before that, I did a short film called Spoke, um, which did moderately well, and that was at the Williamsburg Film Festival. That's when the city bikes were first coming into New York, and that was about how... 
um, the bikes would affect uh, traffic and people. I got some good press. It, it wasn't, you know, short films are hard to get distribution for or whatever. It just, it, it, it was something to put under my belt. And even then I got someone good in that. I got Dennis Hamill. Um, so I got Pete with the Hamill brothers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, I got the oldest and the youngest. Um, and uh, so then... Uh, I had what, uh, you know, seemed to be a dream come true. Uh, through Facebook, I met a man named Michael Whitehorn, um, who is a native New Yorker and got his big break, uh, as a writer for Family Ties. And then he did, did Ned and Stacy. Do you remember that mm -hmm. from the nineties? But his, his big claim to fame was the King of Queens and he created that show. So he and I had a mutual Facebook friend and because we had a mutual friend, he was seeing a lot of this Kanish's, the Kanish's clips and he also saw Spoke. So he got in touch with me and at that time he was in between gigs, King of Queens had ended and um, he was, you know, he comes strictly from the sitcom world. Um, and really knew nothing about documentaries, and um, but was wanting to get involved in it and, and try something new. And we were talking, and you know, I was a huge Met fan. I mean, I'll always be a Met fan, but '86. Uh, those were my Mets, girl. Oh, those were my like, Mets. I, I saw so many games that year. I was in, I was just out of college. Just out of SBA, and that was just a, one of the most magical, fantastic summers. Anyway, you're making a documentary about the 1986 Mets, a wonderful, stellar, amazing idea. And you wanted to have it come out for the 30th anniversary. And all the stars should have aligned to make this happen. And I had a great investor uh, with me, you know, uh, who... I have to say, it was a guardian angel. All he asked for was that I make a good movie. And uh, two things happened. One is that Major League Baseball, and I'll go on the record as saying this, so they were never gonna let me uh, do this film because I am not a name. Um, Judd Apatow is a name, and he signed on to do a 30 for 30 about the 86 Mets, which was really just about uh, Dokken and Daryl Strawberry. And was, I dare say, a terrible 30 for 30. Told you nothing that you didn't already know about the 86 Mets. Um, but uh, what ended up happening was Major League Baseball did not want to do the movie with us because they felt like um, I had been underhanded in my dealings with it. I had gone to the press before I talked to them. And the reason I had done that um, was because I wanted to prove that I was serious about this project that um, I could make a great trailer, that I could get great interviews, and I did. I got Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, I got Mookie and Buckner, I got... You got Lenny, you got Nails. I got Nails twice. You got, you got Nails twice. I got, I, you know what? He was the easiest one. Really? To, to pin down. Wow. He really was. Len um, Dykstra. Kevin Mitchell. Kevin Mitchell, I remember him. He was my absolute favorite. He would not accept any money from me. Keith Hernandez? Keith Hernandez I did not get, but Ron Darling I did get, and what a brilliant man. I mean, talk about the whole package. I mean, like, looks and talent. I had the biggest crush on him. Went to Yale. Oh, who? I mean, you have to be insane not to. Well, a couple of times I was in the same train car as him, 
And I would, and I'd be with my boyfriend at the time, and and he'd be like, "Stop drooling, Michelle." <laughs> He's, he's special. Just, he is special. We he love Ron Darling. Blessed. Ron Darling. He fits his name perfectly. So it did not end up getting made because it was a catch-22 in that um, we didn't have a distributor. So when we wanted to talk to Major League Baseball, they were like, well, you don't have a distributor. And when we went to talk to the different distributors, I flew out to L.A. and we met with Netflix. We went with Fox Sports. We met with ESPN. We were at HBO. They were all like, well, you don't have Major League Baseball on board. We can't, we don't, we can't take this on because without Major League Baseball, you can't even show a logo. You mm. can't show, if you film something in City Field that does not belong to you, that belongs to Major League Baseball. So you can't, and they charge 12 grand uh, a minute for footage. So it's very difficult to make a baseball movie without showing any baseball. I have not given up yet. So what's your takeaway on this on this grand disappointment coming on the heels of such a triumph? Um, it was a humbling experience, most definitely. Um, but I, like I said, I haven't given up yet. So I, there's I still, still hope for the project. There's still hope. I mean, we have wonderful. Not only did we have great players, but we had Susie Essman. Len Cariou, Len Berman, uh, Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. Well, I, I, I would love to be able to use it almost like a Spalding Gray type thing, like a monologue of the film that nobody wanted made. That, mm. Or some call it something like that. Well, yet it may, Heather. Yet, yet it, it may. may. So uh, let's um, talk about your latest projects. I have a few in the pipeline, but the biggest one that I have going is um, about the cemeteries of New York. Um, and um, I'm doing that in conjunction with City Lore. Um, Fantastic museum, City yes. Lore. I've worked with them um, in the past, and they are just amazing, amazing people that want to preserve all of the culture of New York City. So it's basically chronicling uh, cemeteries, not just like uh, as places for dead people, um, but how they, what, what they tell us in terms of immigration. Um, you know, there's, there's so much going on with immigration now and uh, putting up walls and borders and, you know, I could say, you know, people were saying that in the 40s against the Germans, the Japanese, and then, and now it's, it's, it's Mexicans, it's South Americans, it's uh, Muslims, you know, now they're the boogeymen. Um, but we all end up in the same place. Yes, we do. Yep. So Taking a dirt nap. Taking a dirt nap. And um, so part of it is about that, and part of it is about what... Um, the hidden cemeteries of New York, um, what the ones that are around can teach us in terms of art, like Asian um, uh, cemetery or Asian sections, they're big on chrysanthemums in the way that the Irish are big on clovers, say. Or, you know, if a child died or a baby died, um, a lot of times there's a lamb that's... Um, that's carved into the headstone fads in the ways in which people would bury uh use headstones you know in the 1600s 1700s they were uh made of brownstone like the buildings and they had lots of skulls and crossbones on them and uh then later on they were um limestone which if you go to a cemetery now and you can barely read it it's white usually and it, it, you can kind of make out something that had been black 
and it had been legible, but people didn't know that limestone does not weather well. And so that's why you can't see it now. So all those white gravestones right. that look all faded were originally black when yeah. they were first... Wow. So you're looking at for all the little hidden secret cemeteries in New York and you're finding a common thread to tie them all together. Exactly. Oh, it, it, it is the great equalizer. We have Billie Holiday buried at St. Raymond's. We have Miles Davis buried in uh, Woodlawn. Um... Mae West is buried in Cypress Hills. Wow. Um, Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth are buried uh, in Westchester in two cemeteries facing each other, Gate of Heaven and Kensico. And there must be tons of people in Greenwood. And tons of people in Greenwood. I mean, Greenwood is the you know gold standard of New York <laughs> City cemeteries. If you want to be buried anywhere, you want to be buried in Greenwood. But they don't and, have that many spaces left. They don't left. have that many spaces left, so you got to uh... die soon. You got to get, you <laughs> you gotta gotta get in there soon. <laughs> so, um, do you have a, a targeted um, wrap date for this, or is this still project still too new to to? try to project it's it's too new to project but what i'm doing is i'm taking a different approach because um again i uh, am trying to raise money for it that is not my own um uh i am doing short films right now that i'm going to start uh premiering that i'm in the editing phase for i've been doing a lot of interviews. of the same subject or of different the, uh, um cemeteries but different subjects like a man recently just found a headstone in his garage had no oh, idea oh yes i heard about that yes yes so uh, I filmed him, and I filmed the handoff to the people from the cemetery where the headstone belongs to. Um, I went to a pet cemetery up in Westchester um, where there were a scary number of dogs buried there named Heather. You can actually be buried with your pet in that cemetery as long as you're cremated. Wow. So, um, yeah. Both, both you and the pet. Both you and the pet. Not together. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be, that. no, 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 that's, that, that that, that's so too weird. That is no. And there's two uh, cemeteries, I think, you know, right by each other on 2nd Avenue. One is, or, one is the New York Marble Cemetery. In the East Village. And one is the New York City Marble Cemetery. And that is the one I um, filmed at a couple weeks ago and even filmed um, a grave digger there. So, um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think, uh, I think people are going to be really, really interested in it, really fascinated by it. And Peter Riegert, who's an actor whom I adore, he starred in my favorite movie called Local Hero. Um, he was on Kickstarter a few years ago trying to raise money to do a documentary on Prospect Cemetery, which is in Queens, which has undergone a huge revival and, and you know, it was derelict and it's, it's, it's been, um, it's been fixed up and it has a lot of, uh, notable people buried there. And, um, I tried to contact him on, uh, Facebook, but he didn't respond, but I'm hoping somehow I can get some traction there and maybe he'll hear this. Yes, maybe Peter, he if will. you're out there, contact Heather. Yes, Heather immediately. Get, get. So, if people want to contact you, how can they do so? I'm gonna have a Facebook page for the cemetery one coming up. Um, but right now, I am on Facebook as Heather Quinlan, Facebook.com/slash Heather Quinlan, and my email is my company name which is canvasback kid it's at canvasback.kid and then the number one at gmail.com it's listed on my uh, facebook page 
I'm on Twitter as Heather Q, um, H-E-A-T-H-E-R-C-U-E. Instagram. Instagram. Instagram, I'm on as Heather Q as well. So if you can support Heather by supporting one of her film projects, or you can support Heather by uh, getting her some freelance work so she can continue her film projects. (laughs) And once again, it's Heather Quinlan at Facebook, uh, Heather Q on Instagram, Heather Q on Twitter, correct? Correct. Oh, and I have one more thing coming up in November at BAM. I've just been accepted into Pop-Up Magazine, which is like a TED Talk, where I will be uh, presenting um, a film and talking about uh, the the cemetery project and uh, what makes New York cemeteries different from other cemeteries. I look forward to seeing that. Hopefully I can get in. Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see. I, hopefully, I know somebody. <laughs> so, Heather, I always ask this question of every of every person I interview at the end of our chat. If you had some type of um, encouragement or advice for a young person who wants to do what you're doing and they don't know how to even start, what would you tell this child? If it's something that you really need to get out, the I learned from my grandfather who quit acting far too young and lived the rest of his life in um, regret and sadness and anger over not being an actor. And as much as sometimes I wanted to quit Kanishes for various reasons, I he was a huge uh, teacher for me in terms of this is what happens when you don't follow what you should be doing, what your calling is. You will end up a very unhappy person. Not that he was, you know, miserable all the time, but he was unfulfilled for the rest of his life. So if it's something that you need to do, don't be afraid to ask questions either. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. I was afraid to do that. And um, then it took that much longer for me to find out what I could have found out in two seconds. If you don't ask, you don't get. And if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Heather, thank you for being on Fish Out of Agua. I'm so glad we had this chance I to chat. I am too. I am too, my dear. Hug on the oh, air. Thank you so much. We always end with a hug on the air. Woohoo! Bye. flat on the ground, but it's a sure one to five, there'll be someone to jive you, and try to keep bringing you down, now for a while you might take that abuse, and convince yourself to stay loose, but then one day he'll throw you away, and say you're good for nobody's use, but then I'll come your way, turn your blackest night into day. When you're needing it bad, cause the rough times you bad, I'm gonna look at you and I'm gonna say, Who loves you, baby? Who loves you, baby? By now you ought to know. Who loves you, baby? Well, I can't always let it show. Who loves you, baby? By now you really ought to know.
This is one thing I don't want to blow Baby, baby, won't you tell me Tell me what I want to know Baby, baby, won't you tell me Tell me what I want to know If you wake up one day feeling ugly Thinking you're 10 or 12 pounds overweight But just know I don't care if there's gray in your hair If there's hair at all, I think that's just great Now this carnival life that we're riding Gives no one the room to start hiding So I don't want to hear that you've turned a deaf ear To my words and started backsliding Cause then I'll come your way Turn your blackest night into day When you're needing it bad Cause the rough times you've had I'm gonna look you straight in the eye, baby And I'm gonna say Who loves you, baby? By now you ought to know This is one thing I don't wanna blow Baby, baby, won't you tell me Tell me what I wanna know Baby, baby, won't you tell me Tell me what I wanna know And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Can anybody guess who was the singer of the song we just heard? It was none other than 20th century character actor extraordinaire Telly Savalas, better known, probably best known, for his role as television detective Kojak, who was also a pretty accomplished singer. He put out more than one album, and this song, Who Loves Your Baby, was from his 1976 album, Who Loves Your Baby. I love finding out when people did more than one thing, and Who Loves Your Baby was a very famous catchphrase that he used to say in his very deep voice, and now it's a gif and it's a meme and hey, who loves your baby? Kojak lives. <laughs> well, kids, that's our show. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And if you're a fan of this show or any of the other fine shows on Radio Free Brooklyn, you can support us. Donate. Support living artists. Go to Radio Free Brooklyn forward slash org. Look for the donate tab, pull it down and do what it says. One more bit of housekeeping. One of Radio Free Brooklyn's favorite bands, Love Honey, fronted by the amazing Alicia Quinones, will be playing tonight, uh, Tuesday, July 31st, at Arlene's Grocery at 8 p.m. We're going to close with the last of Heather's picks. It's by British pre-rock star singer Anthony Newley. It's called What Kind of Fool Am I? And from 1962. So here it is. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. And all the others put together. What kind of fool am I? Who never fell?